attention, please. The show starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Turning a Moment into a Movement. I'm your host, Jay Love. The movement was birthed um, the day my son, Gerard, was wrongfully incarcerated for a crime he didn't do, and that birthed the Justice for Gerard movement, where we um, talk about wrongful convictions and we educate um, and advocate for Gerard and others. And that birthed turning a moment into a movement where we come on here every Friday to educate because um, in order to organize, we have to educate. So thank you for joining us. Today, um, I'm so excited about um, our show today because we have two special guests. But before we get to our special guests, we want to. Um, I want to talk to our panel members and so far only two is in, but we're going to start with. Hi, Reverend Tia. Well, hello. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm so excited, Jay Love, to be here and um, excited about what we're doing and the changes that are happening in the community and the awareness. And people are waking up. And I'm so glad that we can be a part of people who, what I say, are woke. We are woke. <laughs> we have awakened. And um, you know, being a minister over at Transforming Love Community, where our pastor is uh, Shahira, the doctor, Reverend mm -hmm. Dr. Shahira Stevens, yeah. yes. and and um, having the ability and the, the knowledge that this power that we have on the inside of us will lead and guide us into all truth. And mm -hmm. whenever we need help, we can just call and on God who will help us and answer, give us answers and solutions. So while we are yet using our voice and standing up for righteousness, we are knowing that there are answers, there are solutions, and there's power still with the people. Thank you so much for having me on today. You're welcome. Tell everybody what it is that you do, Reverend Tia. So right now I am, oh my goodness, <laughs> I, I work with uh, Flint uh, Reparations along with um, the commissioner was, is the Bishop Bernadette Jefferson. I um, have been on the Women's Council there helping families to begin to um, and continue to register in order to get some of the monies that are available to them. Um, I'm also a, uh, on, a, on a daily basis work with autistic children. Uh, have a social, you know, social work um, license, and I am currently working on my doctorate in psychology. I believe in helping people get to the point where they make choices that help them to grow and to maximize who they are. So I've been doing this for a, a long time, and I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much. 
You're welcome. Thank you so much. Next is our resident attorney <laughs> on duty, <laughs> Attorney Hugo Mack. Hi. <laughs> well, you know what? It is so good to talk to the money makers and the policy makers. I'm listening on the radio. I'm hearing Reverend <laughs> T all on the radio and and and, and just 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 all over the place. Can't even turn on a stage without hearing her voice. So I'm so happy. I'm so I'm so happy. <laughs> And, and and I'm impressed. And you know, you are a fearless leader, uh, uh, J Love. I'm telling you, every time I hear you, you know, I mean, like I said, Sam really he gonna have to either start giving you some money, put you a co-host, or something like that, because you know, you you're making a big impact. And Reverend Tia, you in there too, you in there too. Don't deny it, don't deny it. So, so, so but you know, I'm Hugo Mac. Uh I like to boast that I'm probably the only criminal defense attorney in the state of Michigan that have office hours from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. See, you know, the people's lawyer, the people's lawyer, right. see? Because my, my clients are the people that are the for real people, I call them, you know, and stuff. And so it, it's always a joy for me to go in areas where other people are nervous about, you know, uh, dealing with people that have been beat up, put under, run over, you know, marginalized, you know, and giving them a hope in the future. Uh, what the talent God has given me. Um, I understand the penitentiary system from inside and out. I understand the criminal justice system from inside and out. And I'm just proud to say through the blood of Jesus Christ, come back from a wrongful conviction to regain my license, you know, dedicated myself to fight for people who cannot fight for themselves. That's one reason I ran for Washington County prosecutor, because that's one position where we need good hearted, civic minded citizens in, you know, to, to make a change. So I'm proud to be here. I'm proud to be part of this fight. And I draw strength from y'all every time I see y'all and hear your, your voices. And so I'm just, I'm honored to be here. Yay, thank you, Attorney Hugo Mack. I'm so happy that you're here. Um, we live in, we are dealing with a criminal justice system that treats, um, treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're innocent, poor and innocent. Um, I experienced that, you know, with my son. I, I even talked to a mother yesterday who was experiencing the same thing with her daughter who was serving assistant, uh, a sentence of 25 to 50 years for a crime that she didn't do. Um, so we, we, we come here every Friday so we can, you know, educate and give hope where so many people find there's, you know, in a hopeless situation. So thank you guys. Um, we have our special guests here. So let's introduce them. Hi, um, Daryl Woods, how are you? I'm good, how about you? I'm excellent. Introduce yourself and tell us what it is that you do. Um. I'm Daryl Woods, and I do whatever uh, Jay Love asked me to do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, um, I'm Daryl Woods. Uh, I, I, I myself is a returned citizen, or whatever y'all want to call it, whatever phrase you want to use. Uh, I served 28 years, 11 months in prison, was condemned to die in prison, had life without the possibility of parole. My sentence was commuted. In 2018, December 2018, I was released from prison. Uh, 2019, 
since been out, uh, I've reacclimated back into the NAACP. I chaired the NAACP and on the inside for 15 years, uh, part of a lot of activism, uh, created a lot of uh, youth programs, uh, raised tens of thousands of dollars for charity while I was in there, uh, organized, organized, organized. That's what we was about in there. And when I got out, I became part of the Detroit branch NAACP. And, and on, on the outside, I'm on the criminal justice committee there, uh, as well as appointed by Gretchen Whitmer to on the state appellate defenders uh, commission. Uh, so I am a commissioner as well. So those are some of the things I do. Uh, I work in the areas of criminal justice reform, uh, prison reform and police reform and youth empowerment and the list goes on and on. Uh, so uh, I'm happy to be here. Jay Love is uh, someone that I deeply respect and admire, uh, a mother who's crying out for justice for her son. Who can I hear her cry? Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I, I see that Allie has made it in. Hi, Allie. How's it going? Oh, great. How about yourself? Doing good. Introduce yourself and tell everybody what it is you do, uh, that you do. Yes, uh, my name is Alexandria. I'm an activist with Michigan Liberation, uh, Oakland County team, as well as accountability for Dearborn. Uh, my main focus in this work is criminal justice reform, uh, demanding justice for Black lives. You know, I, I commonly say that a woman's party is not a group discussion uh, because too often it is. Uh, and I'm happy to be here. Yay, I'm happy that you're here too. And last but not least, uh, well, we'll come back because he's not in the queue. Oh, there he is, okay. <laughs> last but not least, hi, Mr. Hakeem Crampton. How are you? Oh, you muted. Yeah. Unmute yourself. Yeah, yeah. Uh-oh. I seen what was, my apology, it was a pause on us. Every time I touched and it didn't unmute, I touched it again and then it was mute and unmute. And I'm sorry. Uh, Good evening, everybody. <laughs> Glad to be here joining y'all. It's good to see y'all beautiful faces. Some of y'all beautiful faces I ain't seen in a while. I'm excited to be here and participate in this conversation. And as you all know, it's a critical conversation to have. Um, you know, turning a moment into a movement, I think, is uh, the 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 critical apex of each of our lives. Um, each of our each of our lives, we found a moment um, that inspired us and moved us and motivated us um, to either join a movement or to launch our own movement. Um, mm -hmm. And that's why I'm here uh, because there was a moment in my life, uh, many moments in my life, but a moment in particular that 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 took my life from me um, in 1991 at the age of 18, in which I was. I picked up for unsolved, well, I was picked up for a battery at a liquor store, once in custody, um, I was accused of a, of a murder that happened three weeks prior um, that I had no knowledge of. And after an interrogation tactic and game with the detectives, uh, people who was arrested with me uh, falsely confessed to the crime of murder that none of us knew anything about. Long story short, I was sentenced to 45 years in prison, took me 15 years to win my freedom. Um, and when I came home and while I was in prison, though, I became actively involved in, in prisoner rights activism while I was in prison in education curriculum, uh, um, juvenile justice. So when I got out, I got 
right involved and led me to the work I'm doing today. Um, I currently work for Just Leadership USA. I've been working for them for four years now. Um, I'm in a position of movement and capacity building specialist, working with organizations um, across the states to help them um, develop base building and networking um, within their organizations to be effective in their advocacy and policy campaigns that they lead. So I can be a support network for them, having the experience, having the expertise of being someone that has been formerly incarcerated and dealt with the systems, um, you know, intimately, right? And so, you know, as we try to uh, move forward and turning our, our, our moments into the momentum that sustains the movement, um, I think each of each one of us here tonight in this conversation that we're having, um, the passion behind it and the, the importance of it is, is to touch bases on freedom, right? Liberty, one of the, the cornerstones of what everything in, in America is supposed to stand for, right? Democracy is supposed to stand for that liberty, that freedom and liberty. So when we talk about injustice and we talk about incarceration, we have to talk about its relation to liberty and the relationship historically to the liberty that was denied by law legally, right, by constitution to its citizens, to its who weren't citizens, and that was us, uh, Africans, people of color, Aborigines, et cetera, right? And so there's a tie-in to their sense and notion of liberty and justice and the pursuit for all that we were denied when that was written. So we have to have that kind of conversation. We're going to talk about justice. We're talking about reforming. We got to talk reform that very concept of what liberty stands for when it's relation to the Constitution, because that's what binds us to incarceration today. So I'm excited to be here and have this great conversation with y'all. I'm glad that you're here as well, because uh, I really appreciate you when I when everything was brand new to me and I was just, you know, um, starting out advocating. You uh, really you gave me a blueprint <laughs> and because of your blue, what you gave me, it birthed what we're doing today. So I appreciate you. And I wanted to tell you that so much. Um, everything that you do. So um, you guys, we are on, uh, we heard President Biden um, speaking his 100th day and um, office, and they're talking about, you know, um, the George Ford Act, um, Policing Act. And also America is not a racist country. So, <laughs> When we hear these things and we we see um, we see the Breonna Taylors, we see the Deontay Wrights, we George Floyd, um, I, even today the funeral for uh, uh, Makia Bryant. When we see these things, is it hard for us to really say that America, uh, as a black person living in America, is not racist? Anybody could take the wheel. <laughs> oh. I don't I don't know where to start. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh my god, like I couldn't even see myself saying that. <laughs> like I just oh that, that was um that was cringeworthy. Because there's so many examples out there as how it is a racist country, how it is unfair, and he went, you know, I watched some of it. Um, again the other day and him going back to years before where like how he said black people are set up in such a way now as disadvantage um, and it's, it's the what did he say the whatever like it's carried over it's carried Hold over it. and now wait a minute Allie I'm going to play the video <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
I've also experienced a different kind of intolerance. I get called Uncle Tom and the N-word by progressives, by liberals. Just last week, a national newspaper suggested my family's poverty was actually privilege. Because a relative owned land generations before my time. Believe me, I know firsthand our healing is not finished. In 2015, after the shooting of Walter Scott, I wrote a bill to fund body cameras. Last year, after the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, I built an even bigger police reform proposal. But my Democratic colleagues blocked it. I extended an olive branch. I offered amendments. But Democrats used a filibuster to block the debate from even happening. My friends across the aisle seemed to want the issue more than they wanted a solution. But I'm still working. I'm hopeful that this will be different. When America comes together, we've made tremendous progress, but powerful forces want to pull us apart. A hundred years ago, kids in classrooms were taught the color of their skin was their most important characteristic. And if they looked a certain way, they were inferior. Today, kids are being taught that the color of their skin defines them again. And if they look a certain way, they're an oppressor. From colleges to corporations to our culture, people are making money and gaining power by pretending we haven't made any progress at all. By doubling down on the divisions, we've worked so hard to heal. You know this stuff is wrong. Hear me clearly. America is not a racist country. It's backwards to fight discrimination with different types of discrimination. And it's wrong to try to use our painful past to dishonestly shut down debates in the present. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Rabatia. I, I think that they're trying to just take years, four or five hundred years, and just put it under a rug. And that is not the answer. To deny truth is not the answer. You cannot grow from that. You cannot grow from that. I think it's a slap in the face. I think it insults intelligence. When you look at every platform in America has systemic racism. Everyone, not just policing, everything, the judicial system, everything, housing. And for him to get up and, and they're going to continue to put people with that type of consciousness out in the public probably just to annoy me to no end. <laughs> said, who does this? You know, how I, I, I question his intelligence and his ability to identify with people. And for me, people who are in service position, if you have this mindset, you're not serving. You are not serving and you need to be replaced immediately mm -hmm. Woods, do you have something to say uh absolutely uh uh that's just wickedness in high places you know uh you you talk about politics you know that's 
that's all that is, is politics. You know, they speak in their language. He had he represented the Republican Party, you know, and so, you know, this is a bunch of games and these politicsters play games with us to try to incite their base. You know, uh, both sides do it. You know, absolutely. You know, uh, and hey, and, and, and politics is a contest in a lot of ways, but it shouldn't be, you know, uh, at the expense of people dying and being oppressed and starving and all of that type of stuff. You know, this this is what uh, uh, we we see on a daily basis, you know, in terms of in the halls of uh, Congress. You know, the United States Supreme Court just made a crucial decision on, in the juvenile lifer cases. You know, uh, to me, that was more egregious than this clown, because this clown ain't talking. He just keep those those talking points. Right. You know what I'm saying? So they, 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 they put a blinder on you. Why then the United States Supreme Court setting precedent that's going to uh, make us oppressed for 50 to a ne of the next 50 to a uh, hundred years. You know, so, you know, so uh, Trump biggest thing that he did while he was in office was to appoint three Supreme Court justices. And that's what we were blinded by that, you know. And because we listen to clowns like this, whose his words was just a sounding brass and a tingling cymbal to me. You know, I, I, he didn't move me, you know, because that's the way that's the way they do it. That's the way they do it. We have to be uh, consciously aware of the politics that's being played so that we can be empowered to be be able to speak uh, truth to power and galvanize our people so that we can be able to have the force to remove clowns out like that out of office. You know, we don't have no power. We don't have no political power like we need, you know, and but let's not be stuck on his words. His words, that's a reflection of uh, of his party. But many Democrats too have that same mentality too, you know? So, you know, you got some Dixiecrats, you know, who's wavering on issues as well. You know, so that's my spill on it. You know, uh, let's just just uh, empower ourselves with the information, with the tools. I wouldn't call him Uncle Tom. I would call him something else. You know, but I'm gonna be dignified on your on your show. <laughs> Hakeem. Yeah, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, Daryl laid down a lot of you know fine points as the repetia, right? And and I think what stood out for me um, is the fact that what he uttered, the concepts, the philosophies that is embedded in that is a belief that <clears throat> is a part of what, what has been labeled the Willie Litt psychosis, right? The Willie Litt psychosis. See, he is the type of person who's been indoctrinated into that psychosis. He believes probably from the core of his heart, you know, he probably believes from the very pit of his soul that what he spoke is the truth, right? And that's a part of the psychosis that we have to defeat, right? Because that's an evil spirit essentially, because that's what they sought to do was mesmerize us in slavery to make us subservient historically so that we would be in progen our progeny in the future, 
would be subservient to the system, which is why, because we understand that policing is an overseering system, which is why we are taught, you know, through socialization, that everything in life that we're taught through socialization, we're taught to comply, to be in compliance with the overseer. And when we're not in compliance, whether the overseer is right or wrong, when we're not in compliance, we are in the worst form of threat and violation of the law, right? That's why we were able to be lynched with no legal repercussion. We had no legal recourse, right? No, no one to protect us, right? Because when, we, when it gets to the heart of this justice, and liberty, the sense of this, it gets right down to what the American sensibility sees as justice based on the Constitution, based on the founding fathers' principles and philosophies that governs our, our, our society, governs our, our understanding um, of democracy, right? And that's where there's a fundamental failure at because the very people who promulgated uh, democracy in America were slave masters, people who sought to deprive us of freedom, of justice, of liberty in the pursuit of happiness. The Constitution sought to deprive us of that, right? So his, his, his thoughts that we heard are thoughts that we've heard expressed many times before. We hear them every day, and they are a true reflection of the Willie Lynch psychosis in full effect in our lives, and it's something we have to challenge, we have to defeat, because that same psychosis, right, is part of the real mindset of white supremacy. That's the white supremacist mindset. It's the offshoot, it's its progeny that produced his mindset, right? Mm -hmm. That's my thoughts. Attorney Hugo Matt. You gotta turn on your mic. Turn on your mic. Your mic is not, okay, there it is. One million continued apologies. Um, one of the problems is, is this, is that when you have a Tim Scott give the response, you need to ask yourself the question. Now, they've got 50 Republican senators, all right, 50. It's beyond ironic that the only one that's black, Tim Scott, is the one they pick to address Joe Biden. The antithesis of Donald Trump. So Tim Scott, unfortunately, unfortunately, and by the way, the Democrats really aren't per se better because when you really look at the numbers, the Republicans have got one black senator out of 50. How many black senators do Democrats have? And don't count Kamala Harris, don't count Kamala Harris, okay? Okay? The answer is zero. Zero. So in terms, if you really want to look at quote unquote skin color representation in the Senate, in terms of black people, the Republicans got one up. They do, they do. So having said that, that sets up the great visualization, all right? Tim Scott was the perfect person to rebut Joe Biden, the perfect person, because by the color of his skin and the words of his mouth, he gives cover to the virulent racism, the virulent undertone of inequality in the nation because it is being justified by one of them, okay? You see, the reality of it is they never would have been able to hang Nat Turner if it wasn't for the House Negroes telling the slave catchers where Nat Turner was, okay? They never would have been able to do it. 
a woman by the name of Harriet Tubman said, I freed a thousand slaves. I could have freed a thousand more if only they knew they were slaves. So what I'm saying to you is, is this, what's disparaging to me about Tim Scott is that he gets on there and talks about being from a, a single parent household. A lot of black people come from a single parent household. I do. My parents were divorced when I was like five years old. So he knows the right buttons to push in terms of saying, I am the black experience in America. He said his family went from cotton to Congress in one generation. That's the right button to push. His grandfather helped and molded him with work ethic and value. Okay, the right button to push. But what, what Tim Scott doesn't understand is, is that in serving up the statement, America is not a racist nation, he undercuts the death of George Floyd. That was not just a policeman with his knee on George Floyd's neck. That was a system on George Floyd's neck. It was a system, all right? When he says America is not a racist nation, he undercuts the reality when a Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, I believe in 2013 or so it was, Shelby uh, versus Holder, where these states, uh, including South Carolina, I might add, rampant changes in the law to make it harder for people to vote. He undercuts all of that, all of that. So it would have been much better for him to say, America strives not to be a racist nation, but we have a racist underpinning in our culture. It's in our laws. Of course it's in our laws. You know, black people are the only people in the history of this country that have had to have three constitutional amendments just to give us a semblance of humanity. Just a semblance of humanity. So I'm, discour I'm discouraged in the sense that Tim Scott, okay, who can certainly never pass for white, all right, how he thinks <laughs> parroting those words are somehow helping him because he will be of, and, and by the way, this is a man who voted twice to vindicate Donald Trump. Remember that. Remember that. Okay, remember that. So what I'm saying is, what he shows me is he's willing to parrot the line of uh, the, the president is bringing us further apart, but he does nothing to castigate the attack on January 6th. You notice he never talked about that. He never talked about the racism involved in the attack on the nation's capital January 6th, all right? He never, ever talked about that. He never spoke about the verdict in the uh, Derek Chauvin matter. He never highlighted anything that has to do with racism, but just spoke platitudes of how uh, the Republicans are working to make things better. So, um, and I, I really didn't hear what Kamala Harris had to say. So I, I don't want to comment on it until I actually hear what the words are that came out of her mouth. Okay, well, you can hear, you can hear right now. <laughs> okay. Just. Hold on a second. Scott said last night that America is not a racist country. Do you agree with that? And what do you make of his warning against fighting discrimination with more discrimination? I believe that we need to, well, first of all, no, I don't think America is a racist country, but we also do have to speak truth about the history of racism in our country and its, and its existence today. And I, I applaud the president for always having the 
ability and the courage, frankly, to speak the truth about it. He spoke what we know from the intelligence community. One of the greatest threats to our national security is domestic terrorism manifested by white supremacists. And so these are issues that we must confront. And it doesn't, it does not help to heal our country, to unify us as a people, to ignore the realities of that. And I think the president has been outstanding and a real national leader. We know on the issue of saying, let's confront the realities and let's deal with it, knowing we all have so much more in common than what separates us. And the idea is that we want to unify the country, but not without um, speaking truth and, and requiring accountability as appropriate. So, <laughs> Allie? <laughs> yeah, um, a few things. Uh, what happened to their thoughts about there being two Americas? Because I remember that clearly them saying it was two Americas and black people were treated different unfairly. Um, so all of a sudden, now we're unified because George Floyd's murderer was uh, charged. Is what it seems like. Um, like that, this one bad apple was like, oh, you see the justice system works. Like, so we, we can stop talking about it now. It just... It all seems like that, um, trying to erase what happened in 2020 and what's been happening, but trying to erase that massive presence of people really pushing out and, you know, not uh, falling back at all. It seems like that. Um, and I also wonder, too, like, are they thinking about the different policies that have been continuously being pushed by Republicans since this just started? There are anti-riot bills that have been are being pushed in Kentucky. They're pushing a ton of bills, and in Florida, Florida they passed anti-riot bill where three people is enough to be considered a riot. Those who drive into protests, um, they have immunity if they if they do hit someone, it's possible for them to not be charged for that. Um, and then on top of that, if you remove monuments. That is, you can get up to 10 years um, in prison. So there's all those things in addition to you not being able to receive student uh, loan grants if you go to jail for, what it, what do they call it? Um, it's, it's some crazy term about protesting, but if you go to jail for that, then you can't receive student loans. Um, you can't run for office. These are different states that have these things they recently passed. In Florida, which is one of them, and the governor says this is a direct response to when the verdict comes in, like the verdict, we don't want to see this happen again, even pass something to stop municipalities from defunding the police. Everything is a literal response to 20, like, so where is there not racism? If there's not racism, then what is that about, is my right. question. Right, and then when we're talking about um, um, police reform, you know, it kind of, when you're saying these things, it kind of takes the urgency away that we need police reform because you know we're we're seeing all these things happening. We're saying, hey, this is happening because of confirmative biases from because of systemic racism. But when you're saying that you know we're not a racist country, you kind of like um, taking away from our urgency to have these reforms. I feel. Exactly. Yeah, you're trying to and, and, people down. Right. Right. You're watering it down. Right. 
And Jay Love, I wanted to make a correction. I said something wrong. Uh, I talked about no no black Democratic senators. That that's not true. Cory Booker is, oh, is, yeah. is from New Jersey, so I apologize. What I meant is none in the South is what I meant. I, I'm mm -hmm. saying none none in the South, and uh, that 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 speaks volumes right there. You know. Right. Uh, so what does? Yeah. Go ahead, Akeem. Yeah, I was gonna comment. Um, <clears throat> You know, you're right about it takes away from the urgency of our movement, right? And the urgency of the reality uh, of the movement toward for freedom and liberty in this country, right? But at a higher level, you know, what's crucial to point out to me in this dialogue that we heard from the vice president is that <clears throat> by saying that this country isn't racist, it underscores the fact that this country still upholds and maintains the racist foundations of policies and practices that historically sustained and created this, this country, right? And so by denying that it's racist, you're saying that it's relegated to the past. It's a, a part of America's past and that the problem of racism today, as she said, is with homegrown domestic terrorism. So it's a, it's, it's a small group of marginalized white terrorists who hate black people and who hate any uh, liberals, any liberal politicians, right? And who will, who's willing to go to civil war against them. She's relegating racism to the past and to that group. I think that's a mistake, particularly in this era and time when we see that in the 40s, 50s when intensified in the 60s of the civil rights era, we came to see the understand that we're still in a rights fighting era. We're still fighting for rights that we actually didn't ever really gain in the 50s and 60s when legislation was passed and signed into law, civil rights laws and et cetera, voting rights acts law, right? Loving, et cetera, right? All these things that built up the momentum to, to the so-called civil rights and the freedoms that we were supposed to get post, you know, civil rights era, we still don't have, we're still fighting for them, which is why Michelle um, uh, book was so pivotal to calling it the new Jim Crow era. We're in a new Jim Crow era, right? The, 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 the racism of the past is still prevalent and is very systemic, very structured and very institutional. And America still upholds it and maintains it even from the judicial bench, which is why, which is the brother Hugo pointed out, attorney Hugo Mack pointed out, or, or, or maybe Daryl Woods did point out about the appointments to the judiciary, to the Supreme Court. Donald Trump got his appointments in. That was crucial to the maintaining and sustenance of racist institutional laws and practices that sustain the United States Constitution. Right, there was. Well, you know, you know, she's again politicians, politricksters. You know, you know, you know, they have to talk their language. You know, but we as uh, the citizens and the people, you know, we have to stay focused and, and don't allow their language to discombobulate us, although they, they have the bully bull pit and it's hard to fight uh, or to be able to teach in these some of these environments and stuff because some people are absolutely indoctrinated. You know, uh, uh, Donald Trump had, you know, he had a call following, you know, uh, it, you know, they they worshiped him. You know, uh, and so when when we make these statements, you know, as politicians and stuff, they know what they're doing and they know what they're saying and they don't know who they're speaking to. That's why we have to be critical thinkers and be in, in, in intentional about who we're talking to and who we reaching out to, you know, th throughout the 
uh, this last election cycle, I was very pleased to see uh, many activists and returning citizen, quote unquote, returning citizen groups, you know, going through the four corners of the state, bringing the vote out. If you if you want to say what really won the state of Michigan, I would I would say this particular group did it for the state of Michigan, you know, uh, because there was organization when you have uh, uh, men going inside the jail and, and able to be deputized and walking the vote out and taking it to the clerk's office or being able to go in there and register and get the clerk to come in and get them to vote. You, you're in the substance abuse treatment facilities, you're on the streets. So while they had the sweet game, we had a street game. And so if we build our street game up more and we organize more, then we can defeat uh, uh, the Jim Crow sons and grandsons, you know, because uh, that's what we're dealing with right now. His, they, they don't want to let the legacy of their grandfather and their father go, you know, uh, they they want power and control, you know. They want domination, you know. Uh, th this is racist society. I, if, all you gotta do is look at the Senate. You see, see how racist it is. It is. Uh, uh, the Senate is not a reflection of America, <laughs> you know. So that 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 institution in itself shows you how racist America is because they would not vote. Uh, uh, for a, a, a black man and woman uh, on the levels that is proportionate to America, you know? So, you know, that's my two cents, you know? Yeah. Yeah, like, um, it's just like, okay, if it's not racist, then why are we still incarcerating people at the same, incarcerating black people at the same rate, although crime has decreased and continues to? Yeah. Why are we still doing that? Why are we like why are we still funding police departments as much as we do? I could think of at least eight municipalities around me where their their um their legislation right now. Um it's you know municipality elections and they decrease their increase their police budget. Why is that so loud? Why is like, so if it's not racist, why are we not erasing these things that is keeping mass incarceration afloat? Right. So, you know, there's, there's, that's clearly rhetoric to side with the Republican Party, to gain supporters, to stop people from speaking out and doing what we're doing. Um, because the data is out there, the research is, is here. It's no denying it. And, it's very much so disrespectful when you know the reality of America. Right. So what does, Rabatia, did you want to say something before I go? Well, I'm just in agreement with everyone. And I just know that, you know, when you look at the history, we've only had 11 black senators in all of the history. In all of the history of America, there's 11. That includes the people from the 1800s. That should be disgusting to any American. <clears throat> and we need to get to the point where if you are such a racist where you can't accept people how they are, you should not be American. You should just decide that you are not American. 
American because American means the coming together of people from all over the world because nobody is actually from here right. besides the natives. Right. <laughs> when you go, if you go to Dubai, you go to other countries and, and they see you, they ask you where you're from. And when they say where you're from, they want you to say a nation. They want you to say, well, I'm from Eritrea. I'm from Ethiopia. I'm from, I'm from Pakistan. But we can't, we can't say that. So when Americans go over there, they say, well, where are you from? You say America. And they'd be like, oh, poor baby, because you don't know where you're from. You don't know where you're from. And, and, and so we get here, and then now all of a sudden, the people who weren't even born here, who, whose people were not born here, then they want to take over. They have taken over and decided that we are the elite. And now we're putting it in your face. And you're seeing it because we got these cell phones. And, and we're showing you your ugliness. And for them to say uh, there's no racism in America means that they can't even, they still, they <coughs> still can't see the ugliness of it. But we had to show them what's ugly and we got to call it ugly and horrific and disgusting. And that that mindset, that mindset that you have means that you are deranged. And not only should you not carry a gun, but you should not drive a vehicle until you mentally are able to do so. <laughs> so what do... Um, and I'm going to, to Hakeem, what does reform look like in this, um, in this atmosphere of America for us? Sadly, in America, everything is rooted in language. So we have to talk semantically, right? Mm -hmm. And it's sad because American language is a game. Right. That's why the legal system has its own legal jargon. It has its own encyclopedias, right? Its own dictionary, right? And ultimately what it has um, is a is its own justice, right, governing council called the Supreme Court, whose language <coughs> is the land, right? So when we talk about reform, what does reform mean in the Webster's dictionary? Right. Is that a definition that's even applicable with regard to what we're talking about? We're talking about something that is very explicitly legal. Right. Because we're talking reforming what the criminal justice system, a legal system. So therefore, we have to use the language that really talks about what it's going to do within that legal system. If we don't talk about if we don't use that language, then we have to use some other language that people today would call uh, very uh, aggressive. Uh, might call Nat Turnerist, because then we have to talk about abolition, right? We have to talk about abolition if we're going to talk about reform, because in reform, reform simply means to improve or make better something that currently exists, right? To improve upon it. Well, to an abolitionist, to someone like Harriet Tubman, she didn't want to improve upon the conditions of slavery. She didn't want to improve upon the institution of slavery. She didn't want to improve it. She didn't want to reform it. She wanted to free people from it and abolish the system in the institution, right? So that's what we're going to have to talk about when we talk about reform and criminal justice system. We have to talk about how we're going to break down and destroy, right, and deconstruct Right. So we, we can say in terms of deconstruct, we have to deconstruct 
the criminal justice system and rebuild anew by reimagining what is justice today for us, to the people living in this society today that is inclusive of everyone that lives here, which for far too long, the systems, the institutions, the infrastructure right in America has been exclusive and it has excluded us, excluded Native Americans, Aborigines, excluding any other immigrants here that was people of color, have been exclusive, right, to white people, right? So we have to talk about what does it look like for us today? Because everyone living in America today is now impacted directly by the laws and institutions of the past, antebellum America, that created the laws that govern us today, the impacts we are all having, black and brown people across this country are impacted by laws created by white folk in the past that was racist. We have to reimagine. So that means we have to deconstruct. That's a abolition to me. We have to deconstruct and rebuild anew, right? And that's reform to me. Right. Dismantle and disrupt. <laughs> that's what I say. Disrupt mindsets, dismantle racist policies to transform um, the criminal justice system. Attorney Hugo Matt, I mean, you're working in it every day. Um, what do you see as how we get to reform? Well, you know, part of the thing is, is this. And, you know, I, I preach this all the time. We've got to start in our neighborhoods, okay, where, where we live, all right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, we had Black Wall Street, we had Rosewood, we had the Montgomery bus boycott, all progressive things that happened that, that some met with tragedy, I might add, where they didn't have all the technology, didn't have all the resources, but they had a drive to do it, okay? And what I'm saying is, when I say start our own neighborhoods, I told you last week, all right, that one of the problems that I see every time is that I do not see enough black people on these jury veneers. I simply do not see them, all right? And, you know, somebody made a comment last week about, well, with economic reasons, you know, how much is your freedom worth, okay? How much is your freedom worth, all right? So if Dr. King, for 360 some odd days, can have a Montgomery bus boycott where black people looked out for each other, gave each other rides, did babysitting for each other. You know what I'm saying? Came to each other's aid for a purpose. We have simply got to start making ourselves more visible, not just in front of the courthouse, but in the courthouse. Because you need one person, one just person on a jury to stop a miscarriage. Now, now think about that. Just think about that. One just person on a jury can stop a miscarriage. Had there been one just person in a trial involving a young man by the name of Trayvon Martin on that jury that would have stood up and said, you know what, I don't care what y'all are saying. I think that man killed Trayvon Martin. He shot that man. I heard Trayvon Mama's uh, uh, mama talk about, I know what my son sounds like. I know my son's voice. And that screaming was my son, okay? One just person. And even after that verdict, you had a juror, I believe she was biracial or what have you, said, I need to render an apology to, to, to Trayvon Martin and his family because I really went along. I didn't feel comfortable, but other people were saying, do it, do it, and I did it, and now I know it's wrong. Well, it's too late now. It's too late now. 
So what I'm saying is, is this, we've got to start being in the courthouse, not just outside the courthouse protesting, all right? And we've got to be able to stand up and say, I might miss a few days of work. I, look, look, I get it. But somebody's life, somebody's liberty is going to be more important to me and my eternal salvation with God than a 30 piece of silver that I can take and look the other way. That, that, so my thing, the older I get, is doing more and more in my own community and say, show up for jury duty, register to vote, quit letting other people make decisions for you because you think I ain't got time for that, man. I, I you know, I, you know, so, so, and, and I'm not trying to stereotype my own community, but I run into it time and time again, particularly with my younger brothers, you know, and I try to tell them, this is your future, man. Quit sitting on the sidelines. We need you in the game. So it, it, it starts for me, uh, uh, Jay Love, right where I live, okay? And and if I can organize, we can organize right where we live, we can make a difference. So that's like 99% of my focus, right where I live. And Attorney Hugo Mack, I have to agree with you about the jury duty thing, because even in Gerard's case, um, I watched black people make excuses why they couldn't sit on the jury so they could go leave. And um, when you have all these people coming from outside um, cities, you know, they already have a mindset. They already have, you know, uh, biases. And so when you making these excuses to leave and not show up or not answer the call, you jeopardizing a, 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 a person's life. Meanwhile, what happens when it's you? You're going to want that same opportunity. You're going to want some people that right. look like you on that so they can understand when you say um, you didn't do it and, you know, you have illnesses or, you know, they understand. They, they speak your language. But when you have a lot of 12 people who don't even look like right. you, there's nobody who speak your language or understand where you even coming from or talking about. Uh, Minister Darrell Woods. That's right. Well, uh, I, I like uh, all the remarks in this area. I, and I, I absolutely agree with the jury duty aspect of it. I just did a uh, presentation with the people's session on that. You know, we have to step up, uh, especially in the city of Detroit, because we have something called a Detroit Recorders Court, which was taken away from us after uh, the Mattis Green uh, or after the Butts and Nevers conviction and when they killed Malice Green. And so you had two prosecutors come together, uh, Carl Malinga uh, and Dick Thompson, the Oakland County and Macomb County prosecutor, came together, uh, got with the legislature, had them put together a bill that took away the Detroit Recorders Court, uh, uh, where you used to have the choice where you can have a Detroit jury or you can have a Wayne County jury if you got arrested in the city of Detroit. You know, uh, and most of the people opted to have uh, a, a trial within the uh, de you know, for Detroit when they wanted the Detroit jury, exclusively Detroit jury. And so um, when that happened, a lot of things happened bad, you know, in terms of in some cases they was getting all white juries, all Caucasian juries, 85 percent, 95 percent, sometimes 65 percent. It fluctuated and stuff, but never. Uh, juries like there were 
uh, before the recorder's court, people, when you have a jury of your peers, if you would. Same thing happened in O.J. Simpson case as well, you know, so uh, I, I, I am an overhauler. You know, I, I'm, I like Hakeem. Uh, I listen to the language. Uh, I'm not, I don't call myself an abolitionist, but I think certain things need to be abolished within the system. You know, and sometimes when you have the conversation, you're saying tomato or tomato, you know, in, 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 so, in a lot of instances, you know, uh, but and I don't think that uh, we should get caught up in the language among ourselves. But if we look at the issues, you know, then we can unify around the issues. If you want to be a, a abolitionist, whatever you want to be, you know, what I'm saying uh, a, a liberator uh whatever but let's 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 change these laws let's get clean slate passed let's get rid of uh 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 truth and sentencing and get a good time bill passed whatever you want to call yourself mm -hmm. you know uh uh that those are the things that we need to unify around as far as the issues and you know as a person who came out of the system you know i you know hakeem and i have a unique uh, perspective in terms of, uh, and, and as well as Hugo, Hugo as well, a unique perspective in terms of how that system is ran. They can make Hakeem the, the director of the MDOC and he can revolutionize the system and give the, uh, the people a bang for their buck, you know, uh, and, and save a lot of money and empower a lot of citizens and families because he have a keen perspective in terms of how, how 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 to run run things, you know what I'm saying? And I, I I would say that for a number of men and women who have come out of that system, you know. So uh, so the people who need to overhaul the system is the people who came out of it, because the it, it's a it's a strong level of hypocrisy uh, when you uh, go to people and say, look, I, I want to take your two billion dollar budget, and I want to. Uh, this first five years, I want to make it $1 billion. So you take $1 billion out of the prison industrial complex. You know, that's some gangster stuff. You know, uh, people will kill you over a billion dollars. You know, you're talking about food contracts. You're talking about all kind of contracts, you know. Uh, and so, but if you say we want to take that one, that, that next a billion dollars and make it a $500 million budget, you know, you know, break it down in increments and, and then give those, get that money to the people in terms of education, uh, uh, job opportunities and housing and, you know, water and food and all of that type of stuff. You know, you got $2 billion in a, in a system that has failed, uh, a system that don't work, right. uh, a system that is ineffective. So absolutely, some of those things need to be abolished. A lot of those things need to be abolished. Some of those things need to be overhauled and uh, and it need to be replaced with something um, uh, that is fresh, uh, humane, and uh, that's going to be able to uh, give the people what they need to go on with their lives. Right. And, and what you're saying that I was just thinking about how the um, they just created a task force for prison reform. 
And I was looking through the list of people and I was like, okay, where is the grassroots people? Where are the people who are closest to the problem? We have some of the same people who are the problem on task force. <laughs> on <laughs> how are they, how are these people gonna really bring reform where they are the ones that we are out here picking it against and talking about, you know, we're talking about um COVID in prison. And how, you know, what's going on in there. And then you got Heidi Washington on the task force. I mean, how do the, we have these people making these decisions for us where we are the ones who have the issues every right. single day? So right. when, go ahead, Tony Hugo, man. Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry, J-Lo. I'm sorry. So when we have... Um, these creations of things and groups of people, it's like where you guys are missing a mark because you're missing the people who really need to be on these task force, who really you need to be listening to. How how are we, you know, creating reform with the same people? <laughs> I don't know. That's just my take. I guess, uh, I guess my thing, like, you know, I like to see these task force and things like that. Um, even, you know, like, of course, with the right people. But I don't want us to stay on these commissions, task force, oversight, board type of things. I don't want us to stay there. That's my only concern with, um, going, with uh, going in that direction when thinking about criminal justice reform. Right, we need action. Yeah, like it's, it's having a team to overview stuff, to look at things, to assess, identify problems, uh, make sure nobody's uh, being harmed um like that's good but we need something that's sustainable and it's gonna be that's gonna affect change decades from now you know when you think of slavery and a lot of different things that happened in the past those things were done with the idea of affecting the whole generation so with change in a positive direction, we have to think that same way. You know, policy is what is going to prevent po poverty. Um, so we have to put policies in place that will be sustained and they, they won't go anywhere. And that's where we're really going to see a difference. Right. And, you know, J-Love, I wanted to uh, <clears throat> piggyback on something that uh, uh, Brother Woods was talking about. Not only did they eliminate recorder's court, they also took away the defendant's exclusive right to decide if it was going to be a bench trial or a jury trial, all right? So what, what happened, there was such a backlash in terms of the, the Black people that were elected on recorder's court, the prosecutors were very fearful that these Black judges from Detroit were given too much leniency in their eyes to the black people coming in front of them. So they did not want the defendants, primarily black, being able to decide if that judge would be the one to be able to hear the case. Because if you had a, a case where, you, where we thought the jury could be biased, you had a, a better chance with the judge, that used to be a defendant's prerogative. The law does not say that anymore. You can have a bench trial if the prosecution agrees. Mm -hmm. If the prosecution agrees. Mm -hmm. So the, the defendant doesn't have the right to make that, that exclusive choice anymore. Furthermore, furthermore, in the state of Michigan, someone like myself with a criminal justice involvement, I can't sit on a jury. 
Okay, so you talk about sending a message to people that they're excluded, that they're on the outside, that even though they've paid their debt to society, whether they owed it or not, by the way, whether they owed it or not, the bottom line is the debt was paid, all right? You still tell them, in our eyes, you're untrustworthy. You are not worthy of sitting in judgment of somebody else, although somebody stood in judgment of you, okay? So you've been through redemption, all right? You know, the 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 equivalent of, a, uh, of, of an epiphany uh, on, on a religious, spiritual basis. You've been through the system. You've paid your debt, all right? But the racism and hypocrisy continues when you come out and you do not allow that person full citizenship. And it's a disproportionate impact on black and brown people. And that's why I'm appalled with, with Tim Scott and, and kind of disappointed with Kamala too, by the way. I'm appalled when they talk about America uh, is not a racist country. We, we have racist underpinnings in our DNA. And that's the mm -hmm. fact. Revitia? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I. You know what? I'm. I'm. I'm there. It, it, the thing about it is that until we change the perspective, so we're we're looking to the answer um, from the slave owners. <laughs> you know, it, it, we're looking. We're going back, and we're looking to the answers through those who who have eyes of oppression, mm -hmm. and we're we're saying that oh, you you have the key. We're looking to the answer as a victim of rape and we're going to the rapist and say saying help me and as americans we need to stop it you cannot find the answer with the same set of perspection that these people have they have a perspective that is slighted it is biased and you cannot have justice through those same eyes. We should be in an uproar regarding the task force when it does not give proper representation across the board. Across the board. Mm -hmm. So let's go over to the um, George Floyd Policing Act. Um, Attorney Hugo Matt, I know you had something to say about it. Um, well, Go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry, you know, and I'm going to be very circumspect because other people need to be able to talk. What, but, but I'm saying dealing with police, rogue police, not most of them, some rogue police for all the years of my career and catching them in lies and seeing the same police come in lying again and again and again. I am telling you, when people talk about there are police that lie, that is the truth. That is the truth. I am an eyewitness to it time and time and time again. I have read countless thousands of police reports, and I can see a pattern with some police reports that some of these police officers write, and I know they're lying, okay? And so um, so for me, when I look at, at, the, at the George Floyd Act, the thing that is, is so troublesome to me is that even with Democrats, even with Democrats, you've got Democrats that are more concerned about their political careers than doing the right thing. The Democrats have the authority now to eliminate that filibuster or modify the filibuster. But you've got Democrats, you know, and, and these people are really, really closet Republicans to me, 
to me, okay, especially that one guy from West Virginia, to me, um, who could say, if you want a filibuster, we're going to go back to the to the Jimmy Stewart, uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Keep your butt on that floor and talk till your voice is raw. We've given you your chance to talk, but you will not stop the progress of an entire nation simply by sitting up there like that idiot from uh, Missouri with his leg crossed reading newspaper saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm not letting nothing, nothing get passed here. So what I'm saying is, is this is that in terms of that, of the George Floyd situation, I have severe doubts as to that going anywhere. I, I, I really do. Because Tim Scott, what he is offering, there's no provision there for uh, eliminating qualified immunity. All right. The, you know, you know, there's no provision there for holding uh, municipalities accountable with uniform standards. All that man is talking about some kind of a watered down uh, 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 redux of some things we already have in place right now, okay? So uh, when they talk about Tim Scott is working with Democrats, Cory Booker, that's a facade, okay? Because if the bill does not deal with qualified immunity, if the deal, if the bill does not deal with uniform standards for police, then why do we need it, brothers and sisters? What, what, what effect is it gonna do? Because those are the two crucial areas where we need police reform in, just my opinion. Okay. My apologies. Okay. Taking a little oh. Yeah, taking a second to get <laughs> Yeah. Um <laughs> you know, for me again, of course, I have to look at it from a historical context. Um and I and I look at it and understand um how law enforcement is embedded um into the notion um of of of, of, of of American democracy, right? It's embedded into the notion of it. But there was a point in time in which law enforcement was not really a part of the institution of America. It, it wasn't really there like that, right? There was no need um, in early stages of American development, right, to have the law enforcement the way in which it now has evolved. And so its institution, its genesis, when you talk about creating some type of laws or measures to oversight, something that um, evolved in a, in a historical time period, we have to get to the heart of it uh, and to the root and to the historical matter of it to really un uh, unveil it. You know, what is this really going to do? Um, how is this really going to be something that is going to really change um, the nature in which this institution and system operates, right? Because that's what we're talking about. How, because if we don't change the way in which we perceive how law enforcement is supposed to operate, because they operate without indemnity, I mean, they, they operate where it's literally, if we are wrong, you must comply now, and we'll talk about you being wrong later. But talking about being wrong later, about the law enforcement being wrong later, they've always been shielded and protected by so many institutional structures and measures that protect them, right, from prosecution, from accountability. So we still have to get to the heart. If we're going to talk about this new George Floyd Act coming into place that's supposed to protect us in the future, if we're not going to address law enforcement, the heart of what law enforcement uh, practices um, really amount to, then we're not going to really, really uh, uh, achieve anything by an act um, that probably can't even be held accountable itself. Right. So I have, um, I want to put it on the screen, the um, what the jurors for act in policing looks like. Um, it would be a first time federal law 
that would ban chokeholds and racial and religious profiling, eliminating qualified immunity for law enforcement, establish a national standard for the operations of police department, ma mandate data collection on police encounters, reprogram existing funds to invest in transformative community-based policing program, and streamline federal laws to prosecute excessive force, establish independent prosecutors for police investigating. So it's a pretty progressive um, um, law that could be established that will make a difference um, within the criminal um, policing in America. And I think it's necessary, uh, Ali. Yeah, no, I agree. This needs to be passed immediately. <laughs> uh, it's the most progressive law I've seen put forward mm -hmm. on this magnitude. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm really hoping to move forward because it's just that qualified immunity part of it. Yes, that is so many things right there. And that bill in itself was cre created for a racist reason. Like, <laughs> So back to, again, to say it's not racist in America. Right. <laughs> it's just silly. Uh, right. Yeah, me personally, I know I'll be pushing for this bill. Right. Especially when we're talking about any qualified immunity. If it was racist, we wouldn't even have qualified immunity to even have this discussion. You know, people would, you know, treat people how they want to be treated. We'll be looking at each other as human beings and not as, you know, black and white and, you know, so <laughs> hey, if, it, if it wasn't racism, we wouldn't have the prisons full of black people. Right. We we're 16% of the population, but we're like over almost 40 or something percent of the people that are in prison. And that is like <laughs> systemic mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. in itself. So um, we get to the part where, uh, where you want to leave us with. So we're going to start with... Um, um, Minister Darrell Woods, Sr., what is it that you would like to leave us with? Well, uh, I am because we are, we are because I am. Uh, we are in this together as a people to deal with the, the tyranny that we see here in America. You know, uh, I don't care what people have to say about it. Uh, we are under siege in a lot of ways. Uh, by the police, you know, um, by all kinds of isms and schisms in our in our communities. And the only way that we can solve the problem is us. You know, uh, we are uh, the solution to the pollution. Um, we are the ones that we've been looking for, you know. So uh, my pastor, Bishop Charles Ellis, always say, God is not going to do for you what you can do for yourself, you know. so definitely we have to be able to roll up our sleeves uh deal with these systemic issues in our community and work in the spirit of love and unity uh, and sometimes we have to look beyond each other's faults and see the need of liberation and freedom and justice in our community uh you know i don't really want one of the things that they prop before us with uh with the senator is that we attack this black man. He's, he's, he's a black man, whether you like it or not, you know? 
So we stuck on that tearing him down. That takes us off of the, the issues, you know, so we need to be able to stay focus driven, purpose driven, stay the course. Sometimes we got to call some stuff out. Absolutely. But in the same token, we should not turn on each other, but turn to each other so that we can really free ourselves because we need every last one of us as many as possible. You know, uh, uh, as Hakeem quoted, Harriet said, you know, uh, I try to free. She could have freed a lot more, but they, they, they didn't they want to be free. They didn't know that they were slaves. You know what I'm saying? So uh, we understand that mindset, too. You know, but in the same token, we have to do everything that we can at our disposal to educate ourselves and empower ourselves with the tools that we need to be winners because we're not losers. You know, we, we're going to be on the winning side of this struggle. Absolutely. Love is the foundation for everything. Attorney Hugo Matt, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I guess that I would hope when we look at George Floyd, we look at the, the stalling of the legislation in terms of policing and, and voting rights too, I might add, is that we come from a history of struggle. Okay, you know, uh, black, brown, indigenous peoples, we come from a history of struggle, fighting impossible odds, impossible odds. Okay, so I would say do not become discouraged. You know, uh, sometimes we get hit and sometimes we have to cry when we get hit because we're hurt. But the thing of it is, stay on the field, brothers and sisters. Whatever you do, don't put your weapons down and do not walk off the field. OK, because it can be a war of attrition. And I guess for me, in, in my own Christian background and my relationship with God and Jesus Christ, I know these are spiritual forces we're fighting. They're not carnal. They're spiritual. You know, racism is a spiritual force. All right. You know, sexism is a spiritual force. OK, systemic racism is a spiritual force. All right. Because the reality of it is there's none of us on this panel that is so different from anybody else, all right? And if there were a bunch of white people on this panel, there's really nothing so different about any of us, you know, mm -hmm. other than a tenth of a millimeter of skin color on the surface. So what, what I'm saying to you is, is don't give up the fight. Stay in there even when we tired because I do believe with all my heart, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice, towards justice. Mm -hmm. So let's do what we can do in our time, brothers and sisters, you know, to make that justice come to pass. Yes. Thank you, Attorney. Oh. Allie, what would you like to leave us with? Um, well, I guess first I would disagree a little bit about racism being a spiritual force. <laughs> um, I see it very much as something man made, um, you know, and yeah, I don't know. It 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 racism is powerful because of the legs it has, because historically, but in terms of spiritual, I don't know. But um I will say uh us as black people, we are very spiritual people and our ancestors are with us and that makes us really powerful. And I wanna see more black people embrace that. Like know that you have that power, use that power. And don't be afraid. Be bold. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, I guess other than that, 
um, continue to fight because uh, clearly with what Biden said and what Kamala Harris said, this battle is not over. Um, and, and they're giving us plenty of reminders. <laughs> um, yeah, so definitely, definitely keep fighting. Yes. Hakeem, what would you like to leave us with? I'm going to read y'all this piece I got okay. by the archives of Jim Crow. That's my final thoughts. <clears throat> it says, go back into my archive of spoken prophecies. It's there you will find the revelation of poetic prophecies bearing the message of a dying generation lost in transatlantic histories. Yet we all bear the mark of America's past history. Jim Crow never lifted, so we all bear the burden of cell blocks malady Raised since birth in stagnant poverty, been trapped for decades in violence, killing our youth by a bullet's trajectory. No different than a whip from a plantation misery. I think we're desensitized to death ever since the dawn of history. Terrorists kill till we kill them, then they kill us and we kill them back and forth in a trilogy. Keep the dream alive by any means necessary because death by a bullet in the streets ain't, ain't necessary. If we can inspire our youth to fight for education's victory, put Jim Crow out his misery, resurrect Malcolm and Martin to help us reach victory. Got faith in our hearts so we would never give up fighting for it to eliminate until we gain victory. Listen to the last verse of this archive of my spoken prophecies. Now pay attention to these past present words inscribed in angelic theocracy. Exegetically speaking, my bio was blood related by prophecy. Lyrical education is the chapters of the street gospels liturgy. Words spoken for those who need it academically. Peace. Peace. Ravitia. <laughs> thank you thank you oh my goodness i am i'm just so full right now but i am urging us to behold the paradigm shift that we are a part of right here right now we are in the midst of a paradigm shift a shift that's going to take us out of the concepts new concepts new practices new infrastructure and we stand at the premise of all of this, knowing that it is possible, knowing that there is more forces with us than against us, knowing that we can do all things through the spirit that reigns within us, knowing that greater is God in us than anything that's going on in this world. And we got to keep our eyes on the solutions, keep our eyes on the answers, and know that all things are possible. Mm -hmm. You have the power. We have the power. And the paradigm shift is happening right now. Amen. Yes. <laughs> I love y'all. Love you too. Yeah, I want to thank everybody for joining, turning the moment into a movement. We're now on, on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can listen to this episode and others on Anchor. Breaker, Google, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and as of today, um, iHeart um, and Amazon podcast platforms. Um, so we're we're spreading out, um, trying to get this information out. Um, you can listen to us or you can watch us. I want to thank everybody for um, coming on. Um, you guys, this conversation was awesome. 
Uh, I appreciate you. Um, it is our duty to fight for our freedoms. It is our duty to win. We must love, respect, support each other. We have nothing to lose but our chains. I want to see you guys, um, hopefully, uh, everybody next week. Well, you got uh, Hakeem and Daryl. You, you probably won't be with us, but I'll see you other guys next week um, for turning a moment into a movement. Have a great weekend, everyone. Keep the faith. Stay focused. Um, they might um, um, kill the revolutionary, but they can't kill the revolution. <laughs> Love you guys. Peace. Love you too. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you. Peace, everyone.